With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord, my God, lightens my darkness. Those are verses 25 to 28 of Psalm 18. Verses 21 to 50 of which are the psalm appointed for today, Thursday, July the 7th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are uh, continuing to look at the book of Deuteronomy. Today we're in chapter 3, verses 18 to 28. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, verses 1 to 14. And then in Romans, chapter 9, verses 19 to 33. So in this passage today, we're going to look. He's going to take a look back at the, that, those tribes who decided that they wanted to stay on the other side of the Jordan because the pasture land was good out in Gilead. So he says, And I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. This is the same episode that we read a couple of days ago in Numbers. Only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I have given you until the Lord gives rest to your brothers, as to you, and they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possessions, which I've given you. So they were allowed to to remain, well, to allow their livestock, their little ones, and their wives to remain in the land, but the men of valor, the, the, the um, fighting men, had to go into the land ahead of their brothers in order to help them secure their own territory wouldn't have been fair any other way that everybody has to be involved in the conquest of the land. And I commanded Joshua at that time, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. That would be Sihon and Og, the two that we mentioned yesterday, the last of the giant kings and the giant clans that were destroyed by um, by Moses and the, and the people at that time. Now, they're still giants, Right At that time, there were still giants. Goliath is one of those. And again, over in the country in Gath, where the Philistines were, there there are skeletal remains of the giant clans in that area. It says, uh, So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you're crossing, as he did to Og and Sihon. You shall not fear them, for it's the Lord your God who fights for you. Now, there was a reason for them to fear, right? Because the, the reason was they were afraid of the giant clans that were in the land. They said when the spies went that the people there were giants and they looked like, we look like grasshoppers in our own eyes in front, in front of them. And so the Lord's telling Moses to tell the people, particularly Joshua, don't be afraid of them. Now, why would he be telling Joshua not to be afraid? Joshua and Caleb were the only two who came back and said, no, 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 the Lord's calling us to do this. Come on, let's go into the land and conquer the land. Well, it's a lot easier to be the two guy than it is to be the one guy. So the two guy can say, yep, let's go for it. But the one guy bears the responsibility of that. And so now that Joshua's ready to step into the shoes of Moses, he requires the encouragement of saying, be strong and courageous, because I've experienced it. You know, when, when I was on staff at a church, it was a whole lot easier for me to advocate for difficult things and difficult changes than it was when I had responsibility of, of leading a congregation to make difficult changes. It's a very different thing. And so I understand why Joshua has to be encouraged again and again to be strong and courageous. 
And Moses says, and I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, Oh, Lord God, you've only begun to show your servants your greatness and your mighty hand. And he's 120 years old at this point, Moses is. For what God is there in heaven or earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, the good hill country, and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. So Moses is talking about the, the, the prohibition against him entering the land, and he's begging the Lord to allow him to do it. And he said, but no, but the Lord was angry with me because of you. So at some level, he's blaming the people for his mistake. And it's easy to understand why he would say these things. It's easy to understand why he would say, because of you. Because the people rebelled, and then Moses reacted, and he called them rebels, and he he aligned himself completely with God and left the people behind. He could no longer be the leader of the people because he no longer aligned himself with the people. Go up to the top of Pisgah, God says. The Lord said, enough from you. Don't speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the, south, to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of the people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you now see. So Moses is allowed to go up to the top of Mount Pisgah and, and then scan the horizon and see the good land, but only from that, whatever that elevation would be, let's call it 30,000 feet. I know it's not, but I'm just, <laughs> it's, that's, so it's, he gets the, the bird's eye view but not the up-close-and-personal view of it. But, but he, he has the uh, consolation prize of being able to see the land in the same way that Abraham saw in his um, mind and in his heart the fulfillment of the promise of the progeny that were to come. And so it's exactly the same thing that Moses gets here, but he's been disqualified from being the leader of the people to enter the land. In the Gospel... So Jesus is finished with his teachings for the day, with, with the woes to the scribes and the Pharisees and, and the, the, all the pronouncements that he made against the leaders of the people. So he left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. What did they think? Jesus like didn't recognize those buildings or they're just marveling at them. And there was certainly it was it was something to marvel at. It was one of the wonders of the world at the time. And so they're 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 pointing these things out to him. And he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And sure enough, in AD 66, that's exactly what happens. The The temple is destroyed. And they couldn't imagine it, I'm sure, at the time. They didn't see anything like that coming. Things can change a lot quicker than we think they can. Uh, we're living at a time when change is, is rapid and some of it, I believe, to be engineered, uh, engineered outrage, engineered things to get us to do things and to think in a certain way, and not, but not to think, more to react. And so I think a lot of the news is engineered. And here, we, we, we've got to learn to have, to understand the times. Uh, the disciples needed to see that too, but they, they couldn't at this possible time, at that point in time, even imagine that what Jesus said was true. And then, though, they come out to the Mount of Olives. After they leave the city, they go out to the Mount of Olives, and they ask him there privately, saying, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they want to know. They're beginning to believe it, even though they couldn't imagine it. They're beginning to believe what Jesus says is true. And so they ask him, How are we going to know this? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. 
For many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, all those things could be true at any given point in time in history. But they are the beginnings of the birth pains because it's the way that everything ends. Right? So, the, so there will be this, this, the world descending into chaos, and the, um, the earth itself will be part of it. There will be famines and earthquakes. There will be wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes. And so all these things are always happening. And so Jesus is, is not giving them any kind of specific dates, because when he was in uh, this body on the earth, that there were certain things he didn't know. And there's a you know, huge debate about what did he not know? What knowledge did he not possess when he was in his mortal body? And one of those he tells us is that only the Father knows when this last day will come. And so here he's telling them these are the signs that things are about to come to a close. He said then, they'll, then it gets a more specific Then they'll deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Not for the sake of being uh, of Judaism, but for the sake of Jesus' name. So he's telling them, you're going to pay a personal price. He goes from this broader picture thing of wars and rumors of war and nations and kingdoms and famines and earthquakes in various places, and then goes forward to saying, but this is the personal way you're going to know this. You're going to be uh, delivered up to tribulation and put you to death. So don't worry. At some level, he's he's kind of saying don't worry about the destruction of the temple and all that. There's more pressing and personal things that you need to be concerned about. In the same way that Moses was there to encourage Joshua, but 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 Jesus here is encouraging them in, in a way that doesn't feel very encouraging, does it? You're going to be tribulation and death. But knowing it in advance is a benefit at some level because they, they, oh, okay, this is going to happen to us. Now, at the time, it wouldn't have been comforting at all. But after the resurrection, when they reflected on these words, then they would have said, ah, okay. And we know that they did say, ah, okay, because they willingly went to their deaths because they believed in the resurrection, partly because, well, they'd seen it. So here, here he's telling them, you're going to be persecuted. This is certainly not the first time that he's told them this. He actually told them this the very first time that we have a public teaching of Jesus in the Gospels, which would be the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name's sake. He said, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And indeed, it's exactly what did happen, and it's exactly what does happen when there's persecution. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And that still goes on today because there are false prophets in the church all over the place. There are people who preach a different gospel, which is no gospel at all, Paul says. And so we have to be aware of that, and we have to be wary of those who preach those false gospels. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. We see that very same thing here. I mean, lawlessness it would be the state of affairs <laughs> in the United States because we, we, we've decreased. We've uncoupled ourselves from God's law. We've uncoupled ourselves from from everything about him. And so we've become this post-Christian society, and post-Christian society doesn't become more law-abiding. It becomes less law-abiding and more law-less, and that's what we see.
but the one who endures to the end will be saved. In, in other words, that, that's part of the, the whole thing of TULIP, which is John Calvin's theological system. So the, the last piece of it, the, of the word TULIP, it's an acronym, is the perseverance of the saints. In other words, they will, they will persevere in their faith all the way to the end. So, so it, it, you can't make a preliminary judgment about somebody's faith. You, have to, you can't make a preliminary judgment about their final destination, you can say that I believe this, but the perseverance of the saints, that they persevere in that faith to the end, no matter what happens, is the proof. And those who are truly called will persevere. That's one of the central tenets of Calvinism. <clears throat> and all, and this gospel will be proclaimed throughout, the gospel of the kingdom, sorry, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so there are many people who are involved in mission work today. There are people who... who spend a lot of money on mission work, largely because they believe this is a way of getting the end times to come in the same way that the, the uh, Jews in Israel are attempting to create a red heifer so that when the red heifer is there, then all the sacrificial system can be instituted and the Messianic age will begin. So we're, we're all looking for it, but, but Jesus says, no, that's not the system. And it's odd that evangelicals are so invested in the Jewish search for the red heifer because th- that's a sacrificial system, and Christians know and believe that that's, a, that's done away with. It's done away with because the final and only sacrifice, once for all, has been paid at the cross at Calvary. In pa- Paul is here talking about the, this whole idea of God's predestination, and, and it's, I can remember the first time I ever heard about this, because I grew up Methodist. And so the first time I ever heard about it, I thought it was, wow, that's, that's awful, was my reaction to the doctrine of predestination, that some are predestined to life and others are not. Um, but, but it's clear. Paul's going to say that same thing. Paul is attacking my argument against it, which is, that just doesn't seem right. Paul's going to attack that argument here. Um, he says, you'll say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? I mean, if, if it's going to go either way, if you're going to go this way or that way, then, what then, then why does God still find fault if that's who I'm predestined to be? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? And that, that's a, a powerful corrective, and, and it's what C.S. Lewis was talking about when he wrote God in the Dock. That modern man, and it's all man throughout all time, puts God in the dock rather than the other way around. But, but we have done it in an intellectual way, believing that we have the information we need in order to put God in the dock. Put him on trial is what that means. So who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, what, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? So Paul's talking about the mystery of God's election. In other words, we can't possibly know enough to question God on this matter. What we know of God, he said, is enough to cause us to be comfortable with this, even though it's an uncomfortable idea to think that some people are destined for destruction. That's called double predestination. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a painful thing, and it's, it's an awful thing to contemplate. Why would there be these things, that these, these people who are evil, 
who are destined for destruction. And Paul says maybe it's because God shows his patience, which is a mercy in and of itself, with those who are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Well, it doesn't feel like mercy to us, but but it goes back to the sin uh, that had filled the land, the sin of the Canaanites, and why they were, they were supposed to drive out the land. God was patient with them while he had his people in exile while the sin of the Canaanites filled the land that he was going to give to his people. And so Paul says, look, it's a mystery. And we have to be content in letting God be God rather than us trying to usurp his place and put him in the dock and question him on these issues. You have to recognize that he is omnipotent, and I am Wow. And omniscient as well. And that his omniscience, the all-knowing, means that there's probably an awful lot that I don't know. (laughs) And so there's a humility that we have to bring to bear whenever we speak of these things. And Paul says, as indeed, because he asks at the end, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you're not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So Hosea's life, Paul says, was the, uh, the impetus for this idea, that, that we've known this all along. God told us through Hosea that those who are not my people, I'll call my people. Those who are not beloved, I'll call beloved. And then he goes on to say, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. So Hosea is the one who has spoken about the inclusion of the Gentiles, but Hosea, he says, or Isaiah, cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. In other words, that we were so wicked that God's mercy is the only reason there are any of us left because he should have and could have wiped us out for our own wickedness, which is a strong, strong statement, certainly, for a, for a Jewish prophet to make. But, but Paul here is, is saying things that, that certainly don't comport with any kind of Jewish theology of today, because the, the way they understand things is, is that if you're a Jew, you will de facto participate in eternal life. And, and as Gentiles, we can come in through what they call a Noahide covenant, as we keep these seven laws that are sort of universal laws that, that God has revealed to mankind. But, but here, Paul's saying, no, no, that's not true. That is not true. All of Israel will not get in to the kingdom, to the eternal kingdom. It, it all comes down to one thing, he says. He says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it's written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Jesus is this stumbling stone and the rock of offense. And, and Paul is very clear on this matter all through the book of Romans, at least, that, that faith is what we need. And that faith will then lead to obedience. It will lead to righteousness. And that's exactly what he says. The Gentiles didn't pursue righteousness by works. They pursued it by faith. Faith leads to works, but works doesn't necessarily imply faith. Because what we can do is we can put our faith in the works, and that's how we get to the idea of, I hope I'm good enough. 
You're not. You never will be. It's not like, okay, I've done 500 good things and and only 50 bad things. Well, those 50 bad things are 49 more than enough to keep you out of the kingdom of God. (laughs) The, The only thing, the work that gets you in is the belief in Jesus Christ. Now, that belief properly understood, means that he's also Lord of your life, so that that your life then begins to reflect his glory, begins to reflect you're a different person, because that old person has died, now there's a new person who's living there. And so we have to be encouraged, though, to live without fear, because we will endure persecution. So the persecution will come as we begin to change, as we become to be different people, the people God created us to be, then then we'll see some of this persecution. People will leave us, they'll walk away from us, they won't want anything to do with us, because we remind them too much of their own sin. And that's just the case. It just is what it is. But we're called to go forth and preach this gospel throughout all the world, no matter what persecution we may face, whatever whatever uh, opposition we might face. And, and Jesus is clear. You will have opposition and you will have persecution. But persevere. Persevere. And you persevere by faith, knowing that Jesus Christ has indeed been resurrected from the dead. And the promise, then, is that those who persevere and believe will indeed also be called children of God.